0: While everybody is settling, I just want to say it is an awesome privilege to bring forth God's Word. It's also a very weighty thing to bring forth God's message to His people. And it's a very humbling thing also. So, being the biggest choir, it also takes us the longest time to get settled down. (laughs) Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do humbly come before you, Lord, and and pray. We pray that your spirit be with us, that it guides and directs us, Lord, that uh, your word does go out, that uh, it penetrates the heart of your people, Lord, that we go forth from this hall, that we are transformed by your word, that we are encouraged, that we are lifted up, and that we are ready to go into the world, Lord. We thank you and praise you for your word, and just—I just want to especially pray for myself. I pray you uh, settle my heart, that you be with me. You hide your messenger, and I just pray all this in your precious Son's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> uh, Matthew five fourteen through sixteen. Uh, Okay, there it is. (laughs) It says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. May God be praised for his infallible word. First of all, I just want to start out by asking for your indulgence. This is like no other sermon I have ever preached. And I ask that you just please stick with me throughout the sermon. Also, I'd like to say that if it sounds like I'm being hard or mad or pointing fingers, I just want you to know that God has truly placed this upon my heart And the finger pointing is not at you, it's been at myself for the last month or so that I've been preparing this lesson. Conviction is of the spirit of the Lord working in our lives. So in saying all that, let's dive into the sermon. I just want you to picture this. On a dangerous rocky seacoast, notorious for shipwrecks, stood a crude little life-saving station. Actually, the station was nothing more than a little shack with one raft but had an extremely devoted group of members who kept a constant watch over the turbulent sea with little regard for their own personal safety or comfort. Day and night, tirelessly, they searched for those in danger as well as the lost. Many, many lives were saved by this brave band of people who faithfully worked as a team in and out of the little life-saving station. By and by, the station had become a famous place. Some of those who were saved wanted to become a part of this little station. They were willing to give their time, their energy, and their money in support of the station's objectives. New boats were purchased, new crews were trained. The station that was once small, crude, and insignificant began to grow. Some members were unhappy because the shack was so unattractive and poorly equipped. They felt a comfortable station station should be provided. Emergency cots were replaced with lovely new furniture. Rough handmade tools were discarded. Sophisticated classy systems were installed. The original shack was torn down to make way for all the new equipment, furnishings, and systems. It became a popular gathering place, and its objectives began to shift. It was now used as sort of a clubhouse, an attractive building for public gatherings. Saving lives, feeding the hungry, strengthening the fearful, and calming the disturbed rarely occurred. Few members were interested in braving the the seas for life-saving missions, so they hired professionals to do this work. The original mission wasn't altogether forgotten though. The life-saving motif was still, preva- still prevailed in the clubhouse's decorations. In fact, there was a life raft still preserved in a room with soft lights that helped hide the dust of the once-used vessel. One stormy night, a large ship wrecked just off the coast. The hired crew brought in boatloads of tired, wet survivors. They were dirty, sick and obviously from a distant land. The station was in total chaos. The event was so traumatic that members contracted out buildings to be built so future shipwrecks could be processed with little disruption to their lives. The next meeting there were angry words spoken that resulted in a division among members. Most of the members wanted to discontinue the life-saving missions altogether as being unpleasant and a hindrance to their normal social life. Some insisted, though, that rescue was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. The latter were ignored, and if they wanted to continue to keep life-saving as their main objective, they would have to start their own station down the coast, which they did. As years passed, the new station eventually experienced the same type of changes as the old one, and yet another life-saving station was formed. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that coastline today, you will see a large number of exclusive, impressive buildings along the way, owned and operated by members and professionals who have lost all involvement and interest in the saving of lives. Does this story put you in mind of anything, any institution in America today? I don't know about you all, but when I first heard this, I thought of the church in America. Then another thought came to my mind, and I thought, at least that doesn't describe my church. And then, you know what came next? A sense of pride. There might be a lot of churches out there not preaching the truth, but that's not my church. And I wish I could say that immediately the Spirit convicted me, but it didn't, or at least I didn't listen to him. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized that first of all, this isn't my church, it's Christ's church. And I began to weep for Christ's church and the state that it has become in this country. In Ephesians five, twenty-five through twenty-seven, Paul tells us, As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You know, there is always tension in the Christian faith, paradoxes that are hard to completely understand, such as election and responsibility, the Trinity three in one, Christ humbling himself and becoming man, yet still being completely God, And another one of those things is the sovereignty of God. And there are some out there that would say that the state of the church is exactly where it should be. After all, God is sovereign, right? But the sovereignty of God does not mean we lean on our shovels and pray for a hole. Did you get that? We don't lean on our shovels and pray for a hole. He, in his inspired word, has given us commands to follow. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6, Paul tells us again, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofted opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We are in a divine war, And Christ is our King. How many battles are won when the soldiers in the fields take their orders from the King as mere suggestions? In Luke nineteen forty-one, it says, "And when Jesus drew near to the city and drew near and saw the city, he wept over it." The Greek word used here is kleo, which means to mourn, weep or lament over someone who has died. For those of you who are familiar with this story, this is what they refer to as a triumphant entry. When Christ was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and everyone is shouting out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a magnificent scene when Christ is entering the city. And when he comes over the crest of the hill and he sees Jerusalem, he weeps. He is Lord over everything, yet he sees the lost and it breaks his heart. Most of us, I am sure, have heard the synopsis of the gospel that Christ became man, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that was reserved for us, rose from the grave and defeated death and sin, and bestowed upon us his righteousness. And the term Christian means to be Christ-like, And if this is true, then what breaks Christ's heart should break ours. What Christ laid down his life for, we should be willing to do the same, his church. Have we truly been brokenhearted over the lost or the state of the church? Have we wept over either one of these things? Ah, but wait a minute, we are all good Presbyterians here, aren't we? We can't be led by our emotions. After all, we're called the frozen chosen, right? <laughs> just, just kidding. And we shouldn't be led by our emotions. But we need to be led by the spirit who can produce in us, as the word says, a broken and contrite heart. Just, there is right, just as there is righteous anger, there is also righteous mourning. How do we know this? Because Christ displayed them both. Christ looked over Jerusalem and he didn't just drop a tear, he bitterly wept over it. He seen the true walking dead and he wept. Again, if we are Christ's followers, if he is truly our Lord and King, If we are truly his slaves, then what must we be doing? Matthew 6.24 says, No one can have two masters, for either you hate the one or love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. The term slave has such an evil connotation in today's society, doesn't it? But as the great theologian Bob Dylan once said, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. No matter what we think or feel, we are all slaves to something. If we look around, we are living in a very contentious time right now. We cannot turn on the news today without seeing some type of protest or fight, or both of them combined together. This political season that we are going through has been extremely divided. And I don't know about you all, but I know I catch myself getting all wrapped up in it as much as the next guy. <clears throat> but, as followers of Christ, but as a follower of a Christ, am I getting too wrapped up in it? I don't think that my anger about what is going on is a righteous anger. I think it's a fear that the country I love is going down a very dangerous path. Then I'm convicted. Do I get this worked up over the lost or the state of his church? And I have to confess, no, I don't. And in saying all that, it leads me up to what God has been putting on my heart today. Who should we be looking towards? Should it be some candidate who more more closely lines up with my political views? Or one political party controlling the House and Senate that our country would be renewed? As believers, we should take the right to vote very seriously. But we can never, ever look to this country as our savior or anything else other than Christ. This country will not be transformed from the top down. This country will only be transformed from the bottom up. And that can only be done through what God has ordained, has his instrument for the advancement of his kingdom here on earth, and that is the church. We do not need the so-called right candidate in office. What we need, no, what we desperately need in this country is another great awakening. We need true revival in the church, and that is the only place that true revival can start. When a lot of us think of revival, especially those of us from the South, we think of a tent out in a field and people coming from miles around and music playing and everything. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about true revival in the hearts of God's people. The Great Awakening, as it was called in America, took place before this country was even a country. It started in New England more specifically, in Northampton, Connecticut. It is one of the greatest outpouring of God's spirit in our country's history. It was all started when God chose to use a man in a mighty work that God had planned for him. The man's name was Jonathan Edwards, and one of the sermons he preached was Sinners, in the hands of an angry God." The funny thing is, he preached that sermon in his own church without hardly any reaction. I guess the term prophet is not accepted in his own home. I don't know. But a neighboring church in another town asked him to come and preach. And he thought the sermon was so important that he preached it there. But it had far different results. An eyewitness wrote to the event, wrote this in his diary. And this is in Old English, so bear with me. He said, we went over to Enfield where we met dear Mr. Edwards of Northampton, who preached a most awakening sermon from these words in Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. And before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying went through ye whole house. What must I do to be saved? Oh, am I going to hell? Oh, what shall I do for Christ? And so forth. So yet ye minister was obliged to desist. Ye, the shrieks and cries were piercing and amazing, and after some time of waiting, the congregation were still. Jonathan Edwards wrote about this time, and he wrote, A great and earnest concern about the great things of religion and eternal world became universal in all parts of town. The work of conversion was carried on in a most astounding manner and increased more and more. Souls did, as it were, by flocks come to Jesus Christ. Almost overnight, the whole town seemed to be transformed. Talk about cultural impact. The the citizens sang hymns in the street. The taverns were closed. The young people pursued God in bands. And I, it was impossible to get in church unless you arrived hours early. Could you imagine that? We go to a restaurant and we're upset if food takes 10 minutes to get there. These people waited hours to come in to worship the Lord. It rolled throughout all of New England with remarkable results. It is reported that 10% of New England was converted. And we think, oh, that doesn't sound like much 10%. But you have to remember during this time in our history that probably 90% of the people were professing believing Christians, so it was a significant number. And if we just look at those numbers and today, what that would add up to today, that would account for 28 million people being converted in two years' time. Churches in that town were doubling and even tripling. And if you can just grasp the enormity of this. This is what took place in the Great Awakening. I've never experienced in all the time that I have taught or preached, someone standing up and saying, what must I do to be saved? My hope if it ever happens here that we'd be able to, in love, show them the way to salvation. (laughs) sounds to me like another great awakening could be a very messy event but it is it's my hope and prayer that it happens in my lifetime <clears throat> there was a prominent christian leader just recently that went to the far east and he heard about a prayer meeting that was going on on a, fr- on a friday night from 10:30 at night till six o'clock the next morning so he wanted to go out and participate in the prayer meeting And after praying all night, he realized that almost the whole night was dedicated to prayer for revival in America. So after the meeting, he went to the leader of the meeting and he asked if they just mainly focused on praying for revival in America because they knew he was there. And the man answered no. He said this was a typical meeting. So the guy's next question was, well, how long have you been meeting? And the answer was for 12 years. He was baffled. So I asked, why? And the man answered, we know if revival would break out in America, it would affect the whole world. To me, this is a mind-blowing thing. A group of people meeting and praying all night for a revival in a country the vast majority of them have never stepped foot in. And I know I pray for revival all the time, for Christ's church and for myself, but as usually, please God, revive your church or please God, revive me. But to pray once a week over 12 years just blows my mind. And it brings to mind the old Saturday Night Live phrase, I am not worthy, I am not worthy. And I think that's the whole point, I am not worthy. But Christ is worthy of our praise and loyalty. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Do we want the messiness of true revival? Can we even handle it? I don't know, but I'd love to find out. But in saying all this, I have said today, how is it that true revival starts? And first and foremost, it's like all other blessings. It flows from the throne of God. But like I said earlier, we don't lean on our shovel and pray for a hole. And the same holds true for this. It is only when God's people truly humble themselves and pray and pray and pray, and did I mention pray, that God would first of all revive ourselves and then revive his church. Is this a guarantee that it will happen? And the answer is a resounding no. Oh, but I want a guarantee. I'm sorry, but our next breaths aren't even guaranteed. So what might we get out of it then? Someone might ask. Well, just maybe a closer walk with the Lord. And as believers, I think that is something we all need to desire. God's people walking closely with the Lord, having an intimate relationship with him through the means of grace he has provided for us, knowing his word, coming under the preached word, the sacraments, fellowship with the saints and prayer. If just this past week doesn't show us that we truly live in a fallen world, I'm not sure what would. Terry and I both are big fans of The Voice. And last Friday night in Orlando, Christina Grimley, after a show, was gunned down violently. And if that wasn't bad enough, the next night in the same town, at least 50 people were killed the largest gun massacre in our nation's history. So many lives shattered, seemingly no hope in sight. But we as believers have access to the throne of the king of the universe. We have the answer and we need to share that answer to the lost and dying world in love. The passage that was read this morning in Isaiah has been used a lot lately. In Christian radio, and I'm sure by a lot of Christian leaders, talking about calling evil good and good evil, and people pointing to what's going on in this country. See, people are calling evil good and good evil. You know, with the gay marriage issues, the bathroom issues, and so on. You know, this passage is used in the wrong context, if that's how it's used. I had Al read down to verse 24. But if we go to verse 25, we see who the Lord is talking to. It's not the world. It's his people, the church. It says in verse 25 of Isaiah, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked and their corpse were his refuge in the midst of the streets, for all his anger has not turned and his hand is still stretched out. It should be no surprise to us whatsoever that the world is calling evil good and good evil. That's all they know. They do not know the truth. How could they ever call anything, how could they ever see it any other way? It's when God's people do it is when God's anger burns. And we can see that today in America. Instead of the church standing in the gap and standing up for what is true, it is letting the culture dictate to it what is true. In 1 Timothy 3.15 it says, if I delay, and this is Paul speaking about him coming to them, if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. We as believers, when we when we as believers start accepting what the world calls good and do not stand firm on the truths of God's word, then are we truly loving the lost We have the truth of God, the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. I need to close, but I have so much more I'd like to say. I started out by reading Matthew 5, being a light on a hill. And that is what the church needs to be, a beacon of truth and life, of truth and love. Light always penetrates darkness. There is no exception. Light always penetrates darkness. Darkness can never overtake light. But it seems so often that we walked around defeated, myself included. But we are more than conquerors through Christ. The church in America needs to once again shine like that city on a hill being the beacon of light that it's called to be. If it is not the church that stands up, then who will? If we do not take God at his word, then are we truly believing in him? We have this infallible word that all truth is based upon, If we do not stand up and deny the lies that the world is promoting, and even worse, accepting those lies as truths, we need to repent as a people. We are truly sinners in the hands of an angry God, if that's the case. Another passage that is so often used wrong, I believe, is the passage in Revelation that when Christ says he stands at the door and knocks, Christ is standing at the door of the church of Laodicea. So often we hear this verse and that people use it as Christ staying at the unbeliever's heart and knocking, asking to come in. No, Christ is standing at the door of the church and asking to come in. That doesn't put fear in, the heart, in our hearts. I don't know what would. We have the word of God. We have his spirit living in us. We need to be that pillar that stands firm. We cannot shrink away from what the Lord has commanded us to do. We need to take hold of the promises of God that are in his word and shed his light on a lost and dying world. Christ came to save the lost. He gave us a mission to go into all the world to preach the gospel. And what is the gospel but other? The grace and mercy of a loving heavenly father who wants to shed his light, his love on his people. Like I began with this morning, if I sounded hard or finger pointing, believe me, it was all me. God has been talking to me in the last month, showing me where I need to stand firm. And I hope my call today Is that you all know that we all need to stand firm together, knowing that it is not in our power, but it's in the power of Christ and the work that he did on the cross. That we need to go forth, that we do have the true message of reconciliation to God. It's found nowhere else. And it's the church that God has instituted to promote that message, to bring it forth. Most importantly, in, in love. Truth and love are the same coin but different sides. You cannot have love without truth and you cannot have truth without love. We cannot truly love someone and not tell them that they are destined for hell unless they are put their trust in Christ. They go hand in hand, they cannot be separated. Thank you for letting me indulge myself this morning. I hope the message meant a lot to you. I know it meant a lot to me in preparing it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I humbly come before you this morning as a sinner in the hands of an angry God. Lord, I just pray that you be with your people. We are weak and desperate people, Lord, in need of your grace and mercy each and every day, Lord, each and every moment of our lives. We need it. Shine forth your light into our hearts, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.